What's up, everybody? Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Spooky Soup Podcast. My name is Jesse. And I'm Tessa. It still feels good to be back. It does. I feel like a breath of fresh air. Yeah, no, no, sorry. Let me let me rephrase that. I feel like a breath of cemetery and night fog, foggy air. Just clears your mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just gets all those spider webs out of there, you know? Absolutely. I've missed you guys. I know you've missed us 100%. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had a, a friend of mine. He was like, dude, you guys haven't posted since January. What the heck? And I was like, oh, dude, like, thanks so much for missing us. <laughs> <laughs> it feels good to be noticed. <laughs> <laughs> so that was awesome. Um, okay, cool. So today I have the Reddit story. I just have one. It's just a little bit long. That is A-OK. I'm ready for it. You got the historical story for us today? I do, and I'm giddy because I love this story. So excited. Oh, hold on. Let me let me guess. Is it a Utah story? No. No? No. Yo, that's a first. This mm. is because it is something that I have, I have just invested way too much time into it, and I needed to talk about it. Okay, fair enough. Awesome. Well, I'm glad that you're spreading your wings, man. Oh, I'm going to quickly return to Utah <laughs> soon. <laughs> There's just, just too much here. You know, you got to cover it all. Okay. Going for a short vacay? Okay. Yeah, a little detour. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, um, before we get started, just wanted to uh, let everyone know that we started a TikTok recently. Um, and on that, I wanted a platform for us to be able to share, like, um, shorter stories, uh, stuff that we usually don't share on the podcast, like creepy pictures and stuff like that. All things spooky. You can check us out there. Spooky.soup.podcast. I'm hoping I can update that username in the future if they'll let me. Um, also real quick, any images that we post that relate to our stories, we will post those on our, um, Instagram so you can see them there. Also, if you want to send in your scary story, please do. You can email those to us at SpookySoupPodcast801 at gmail.com or you can DM those to us on our Instagram, SpookySoupPodcast. Okay, you ready? I'm so ready. Okay, so this story is called A Bookshop and it's posted by Reddit user u slash extinction burst one four oh one four, that's it, okay. All right. The wind kicked up leaves and small stones, blowing them aggressively across the sidewalk. Jared watched each one, stomping leaves with his steps as he made his way across town. He was headed to a bookstore he had seen on a brief foray from his new home. It was time to clear his mind in an attempt to find peace during the recent changes in his life. A cold fall day seemed like the ideal time for him to explore this new shop only a few blocks from his studio apartment. Studio was a generous term. The apartment was previously a garage that his landlord was now renovating into a livable space. The bathroom was being put in this morning, waking Jared up at the ripe hour of 6 a.m. Spending his time on a futon all day with the power tools running and a constant procession of construction workers sounded far less appealing than going for a walk in the cold. And so, 
Jared found himself exploring a new place in a new town with his new life for the first time since arriving. The bookstore stood two stories, with the second jutting a few feet above the neighboring buildings with the same number of floors. It was old, with the buildings around it much newer and made of finer materials. The surrounding buildings made this shop seem out of place and time. Jared could relate to that. The bay windows were both completely glass with the name adhered to each in an old font, a bookshop. The letters were chipped in certain spots, likely the result of aging and general neglect. Jared took two more steps to the front door, dreading the bell that would alert the clerk behind the counter of his presence as he entered. The bell rang to his dismay, and he locked eyes with a woman behind the counter. She looked as old as the building itself, smiling faintly in his direction before resuming the reading she had been busy with when he walked in. Good, this was the kind of attention Jared was used to and wanted while he searched for a story to hold his interest for the next few hours before he could return to his apartment. The first floor was what he expected. The bestsellers and the stories adapted into movies to get the attention of casual readers. Each one could keep his attention for a time, but he knew there would be more days of leaving his apartment for the day while his unit was being finished. Jared felt pulled to the second floor finding stairs with a creaky landing halfway up before turning 90 degrees to ascending further. Each stair moaned under his weight, and he cringed as the next stair seemed louder than the last. He could feel the old woman's eyes follow her only customer as he moved out of sight. Jared wondered, while he took his first steps on a dusty wood floor, how many people actually stayed long enough to explore the second floor to the shop. The air seemed stale here, and Jared felt as if every movement would kick up a small cloud of dust to obscure his vision and block his windpipe. He moved slowly to keep the dust down as much as he could, which was almost impossible. The first shelf held books that all looked the same, as if they were volumes of an encyclopedia or history books. They were a faded black, and although they were different lengths, the titles were a faded gold he could make out through the dust. The titles were obscured by the dust, and he wasn't interested enough in reading an encyclopedia to bother cleaning it for inspection. The next shelf looked the same, and the one after that. Jared became curious why the entire floor would have either copies of the same book or volumes in a series. He wiped his finger across the spine of the nearest book, revealing an author's name in gold lettering stretching the entire spine. The book to its left was the same, other than a different author's name, on the on that spine three more books three more authors but still no titles he pulled a story written by Teresa Palmer off the shelf and opened to the first page and that and that reads a small child came into this world a girl her parents gazed fondly upon her and named her Teresa after her grandmother a good name after a good woman her birth certificate read Teresa May Wesley but that name would not last forever. In time, after marriage, she will be known as Teresa Palmer. Jared stopped. Teresa Palmer must be the title, not the author. That must mean the others were also titled after the main character of their story. It was odd that each one had the same binding and font. He chose another, titled Eric Meyer, and opened to the middle of the story. Eric slowed to a stop few houses down the street from Jane's. 
He had told his friends earlier that day that tonight was the night. He couldn't wait to see her. His eyes lit up when he saw her, clumsily emerging from the bushes of, of the neighbor's yard. He had ideas of what she would be wearing in his head, but she was still more beautiful than any image he could have thought, thought up. She got in the car, and he kissed her deeply. They stared into each other's eyes for a long moment. Eric started the car, and in a moment, was out of sight. Jared stopped again. Eric started the car, and in the moment, was out of sight? He had assumed that the narrator was the author, not someone watching Eric and seemingly following him. The story made him uncomfortable, but when, but he wanted to learn more about it before putting it down. He flipped forward. Eric and Jane went to a small dinner. They both were still living with their parents after high school and working odd jobs so they, so they couldn't afford a fancy meal. Living with their parents, they still were sneaking away in Eric's car to have sex after a date. There was so much detail about the evening, but there was no other reference to the author being in the book until the end of the night. And it continues to say, Eric and Jane were awkwardly putting their clothes back on in the back seat of his small Pontiac. They stole glances at each other as they buttoned their shirts. Smiles on their mouths and blushes on their cheeks. It was a shame their date had to fall on this evening, but I couldn't wait any longer. Jane was not meant to be involved, but it had to be now. I will make sure Eric knows it is his fault they would both meet this end. I began to approach, taking care to be silent, but they were focused on other things. When I reached the side of the car, I saw Jane's eyes grow wide. Eric saw her and turned to see me. We had made eye contact before, but only in glimpses as he fell asleep or while I watched him from the woods. He never thought what he had seen was real. Otherwise, he would not have come to a place he was where he was so vulnerable. We shared that stare, both of us cherishing in it in its final in his his final moments. He broke eye contact only once to look at the keys in the ignition, too far away to make a difference. Now I grabbed him when he looked back and pulled him from the car. I lifted him, his feet dangling as I slipped my hand through his chest. The warmth. Bl- Jared couldn't read anymore. This wasn't the kind of story he had wanted. This felt too real, and horror was already a genre that unsettled him. There was enough horror in the world without him to seek it out in fiction. He ignored the rest of the books in this aisle, thinking it may just be a horror section. Only an hour had passed since he had left the house, so he needed to fill his time with something something else. Jared continued to wander the aisles and picked another at random as far from the previous book as he could. Its title was also a person's name. This one was called Garrett Freeman, but he hoped that that was the only trait it shared with the one about Eric. Jared flipped to the end just to make sure. This one's ending was no different. Garrett was followed and attacked at the end of the story. He quickly put the book back and turned to to the first one he had chosen, Teresa Palmer. This book was longer than the other two, by three or four hundred pages, Jared flipped to the end and read the last few pages, and they say, Teresa returned from her husband's funeral and stared out the window into the dark. She almost seemed to be looking for something. She was only a girl the first time I saw her, though. Saw her through a different window. Now she was an old and withered woman, lost in the world now that her love was gone. She scanned the yard once, then twice. She retreated to her kitchen and the lights flashed off. 
After a moment, she returned to the window and began scanning once more. She stood like this for some time before stepping out onto the porch. Teresa then did something none of the others have. She spoke to me. I know you're out there. My imagination isn't good enough to make you up. Please, come out. I didn't know what else to do but obey her. I revealed myself from behind the large oak. Teresa gasped, as they always do at first, but she closed her eyes and took a breath to still herself before looking to me again. This time, we shared a stare, different from the ones before. I had thought those who had looked at me in the past had felt as fondly for me as I did for them, but the way Teresa looked at me proved I had been wrong all along. This look was unafraid. I only revealed myself. I would let her decide what came next for her. I've just lost everything. I might be crazy, but you are all I have left. Why are you here? I explained myself why she was chosen and why, one day, she would have to die. Teresa's eyes never strayed from mine. She looked up at me with brave eyes. I had seen her with this look before, but never directed at me. What are you? No one had ever asked me. Maybe they hadn't gotten the chance to. She was not satisfied with the idea that I did not know. Well, I guess it doesn't matter much. If my time is to come, and you're the one to do it, when will you do it? The night would not be for another year, and I had gone without feeding for a long time, but something about her made me explain that I could wait a little longer. Like I said, everything is gone. My husband was all I had left. I could go now if you were ready. I want this life, this one's life, to mean something. If I fed that night... It would only prolong my life. The night needed to be perfect if I wanted to use her body as my home for a while. Otherwise, I would remain in my true form even after. She waited. She waited 242 more days. And on the night we had agreed upon, she walked out on the porch for the last time. The porch I had seen her on so many times and most recently joined her. The process was quick, like she asked, she'd asked, and I will wear this one with pride as I carry on. That was the end of the story. This one was different, but something was the same between the books he had read. In each one, something was following the title character for what seemed like years. Jared looked around the dust-covered stacks. Was each one of the stories as descriptive as the last? Did each one end the same? And what kind of motivation is there to keep these stories in a bookshop? Jared began to feel uneasy being alone in the store. The stories were making him feel like he was being watched, and he felt it was time to go. As he came to the top of the stairs, he was startled to find the woman from the front counter at the landing below staring right up at him. She floated him the same weak smile she had given him earlier. Need any help finding anything? She said in a small voice. I'm just looking for now, but thank you. He wanted to leave. He didn't care how loud the power tools were or how uncomfortable his futon was. He wanted to be there now. Those stories up there are really something, aren't they? I only skimmed a few, but I don't think they're much my speed. Oh, well, I've been collecting those a long time. Long before you were born, I'd imagine. She let out a small laugh and glanced away. Something didn't seem right. Now that he was looking closer, the wrinkles and stretch on her skin began to look less natural than it had before. Were her eyes too deep set? Was her hairline just the smallest bit crooked? 
Maybe I'll get a chance to come back and buy one next time I'm through. Oh, <laughs> sweetie, those aren't for sale. Customers actually aren't allowed on the second floor. It says on the sign right there. She pointed at a sign at the top of the landing that stood, stated as much. Jared's stomach dropped. He had completely missed it when he climbed the stairs earlier. He had felt her eyes on him. Why hadn't he? Why hadn't she said anything? Did she want him to see? I am so sorry, ma'am. I completely wasn't paying attention. I didn't take anything, I swear. If you'll just let me pass, I'll be out of your way. He felt trapped at the top of the stairs. The room seemed darker now, as if it were breathing down his neck. The old woman just continued to look at him. The stories were just fake, right? She stared for an eternity longer, or maybe just a moment. Then she smiled and walked back down the stairs. He was frozen there. He crept down the stairs, trying not to start running each time the loud creak resonated through the building. When he reached the landing, the old woman was back behind the counter. Thank you. I'm really sorry I went upstairs. It won't happen again. That's all right, son. I'm sure it won't. Those stories are hard to read twice, she grinned. Jared grabbed the nearest book on the discount rack and bought it with cash. He felt embarrassed for letting his mind scare him like that. This book, whatever it was, would be fine. He checked out, apologizing again for his negligence. Thank you. When you come back, just pay better attention. She handed him the bag and his receipt. He made his way to the door as quickly but calmly as he could. He reached for the door, the bell jingling again as he opened it. He almost made it all the way out to the sidewalk before she spoke once more. And next time, ask for Teresa and I'll help you with anything you need. He didn't turn. He just kept walking. Jared had his head down as the wind blew directly at him. There was a second, only a second, when he felt like he saw something out of the corner of his eye. Ah! <laughs> oh, that was good. Freaky. Yeah. Oh, man. I like that one. I wish I could have an experience like this anytime I entered a bookstore. <laughs> Barnes and Noble would be so much cooler. <laughs> Seriously, they would have like the best horror section. It's all the second floor. Yeah. And it's just <laughs> it's us. Like, it's true stories. Books about people. Yeah. But so did the thing like, you know, kill Teresa and then took over her? Yeah. Is that what's going on? Yeah. That's pretty crazy. It sounds like it settled down, made a life for itself, mm-hmm. started a bookstore. Yep. And, and has, you know, a great time living as Teresa. Sure. Sure. You want to know what I was thinking of the whole time I read this the first time? What? <laughs> I was thinking of the the villain or the monster from Jeepers Creepers for some reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's way nicer than that. Even though it kills, it's still nicer. So Yeah. It just <laughs> hangs out inside yeah. the shell of a human. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, hopefully I got y'all spooked for uh, Tessa's very giddy story. Very excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that I usually cover Utah-only stories, but today... I'm taking y'all on a journey to the east, and then the west, and then the south. Okay. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get so into a true crime case that I just indulge in everything. I have to listen to everything, read everything, watch everything, just like hours and days worth of content so that I can learn absolutely everything about the case, and I kind of find myself drowning in the details here and there, but... This is one of those cases to me. It has been on my mind for a very long time. 
Now, do you remember last week how I told you a story about a dentist in Colorado that killed his wife with cyanide? She is. So, cyanide comes in many forms. It can be gas, a liquid, or a solid powder. I think people greatly misunderstand cyanide. You often hear it referred to in spy movies or as a quick way to die. But those who say that completely leave out the part that cyanide is actually one of the most painful ways to die. And let me say that again, it is one of the most excruciatingly painful slow ways to die. And by slow, I mean because every second feels like an eternity when you've swallowed cyanide. (laughs) And the subject of today's story used cyanide as his killing method of choice. His name was none other than Reverend Jim Jones. Oh. I mentioned the Kool-Aid last week. I know, I know. I know. I know. I, like, it caught me off guard, and I had to, like, keep myself from being like, Oh my gosh, that's our story! (laughs) (laughs) But here we are. (laughs) So, Jim Jones is responsible for one of the largest instantaneous mass murders in American history. Mm Mm-hmm. And I want to preface the story by saying that I refuse to believe what happened to the people of Jonestown to be a mass suicide. This was not a suicide at all. And I urge everyone to keep this in mind as I tell the tragic story, because it all starts to make sense when you understand it as a murder, not a suicide. Yep, 100%. Every single member of Jonestown was a victim of Jim Jones, and I will die on this hill. (laughs) And this is why. Jim Jones was born May 13, 1931 in Indiana to his parents, James Jones and Lynetta Putman. Now, things in Jim's life were really bad from the start. His father suffered severe lung damage due to chemical warfare used in World War I, and because of this, he wasn't able to work very long, and he wasn't able to hold a steady job. This put a lot of stress on the marriage, and on top of that, It's reported that Lynetta was a terrible mom, that she just left Jim to his own devices and didn't care what he did. Having grown up in a shack without running water or electricity, Jim's life was heavily impacted by the Great Depression. He grew up lacking the basics of survival, like having food readily available, a mentally stable home, and a reliable shelter. And what do people do when they experience a quote-unquote personal Great Depression? They look for something to hold on to with the hopes that it will pull them out of it. Jim Jones quickly became attached to religion. Not just one religion per se, but the idea or the essence of religion. He liked the organization, the sense of belonging, and perhaps the power one could hold of over others in a religion. Now, we're well aware that every serial killer or deranged person in true crime usually presents disturbing behavior at a young age. He was known as a weird kid on the block who was outwardly and utterly obsessed with death. He would go to a nearby casket manufacturer and host funerals for roadkill that he picked up himself. And he would tell the kids in the neighborhood to come to these services. Some kids reported that Jim Jones even captured a cat and killed it for one of these funerals. This is a classic sign of a serial killer in the making. He would host these funerals for kids around the neighborhood to attend, but when he started doing them too much, the kids got really creeped out and they stopped coming to the services. He would also host 
sermons for the kids in the neighborhood and would play preacher for hours, forcing them to listen to him ramble on. Not only was he obsessed with death, but he was obsessed with Hitler and Nazi ideology. And on top of that, he started showing really concerning sexual behaviors as a young child. Even with the pleading of vocal kids in the neighborhood and their parents for his parents to discipline him, they refused to. His dad just wasn't in a state to care, and his mom was just, like, so hands-off. She didn't bat an eye at it. Right. Now, here's a direct quote from Mr. Jones himself. I was ready to kill by the end of third grade. I mean, I was so aggressive and hostile, I was ready to kill. Nobody gave me love, any understanding. In those days, a parent was supposed to go with a child to school functions. There was some kind of school performance, and everybody's parent was there but mine. I'm standing there alone, always alone. This is where things start to get really interesting, and where we start to connect the dots of just how this man acquired so many followers. Jones was disturbed with how African Americans were treated in his hometown. Even though he believed in Nazism and worshipped Hitler, he he despised racism. Which, Hmm. I don't understand how the two can coexist, because they obviously can't. But his dad was a very, very active member of the KKK. And because of this, Jim cut him out of his life, and he adamantly disagreed with his dad's racism. By the 1950s, Jones was married, and he was really starting to get involved with communism. So much so that the government kept a watchful eye on him, his wife, and his mother, who brought them to communist functions. He decided that in order to spread his ideas and appeal to the masses, he needed to use his ability to captivate a crowd and combine it with religion. Jones started a group called the People's Temple, and at the time it only attracted about 20 people from his previous ministering duties like for example he would go and preach and some people would start to follow him but in the end he only ended up with 20 followers he knew that he needed more followers if he was going to implement change of any kind so he started preaching about race equality integration and even more so recruitment he focused so much on racial equality that he started to get a lot of attention especially during this time which was the 1950s in America. And it's important to note that he was a renowned and captivating speaker. Songs were written by him and gleefully sung by his choir of devoted followers. He started to gain a lot of traction in Indiana, and his listeners would come in every week to hear him, so much so that their following got massive. Now here is a clip I'm going to play for you um, from the BBC documentary about Jim about Jim Jones, and I want you to listen to the children's choir sing about him, and then the quotes that some of his followers have to say. The first time I visited People's Temple, I drove at the urging of a friend and and the co-worker to Redwood Valley. We all got suited down, neck and tie and everything, and, you know, and uh, we were sharp. 
As soon as I walked in to the San Francisco temple, I was home. It was an interracial group. The choir was interracial. And they used to sing this song, never heard a man speak like this man before. Never heard a man speak like this man before. All the days of my life, ever since I've been born, I never heard a man speak like this man before. So it's easy to say that his followers were starting to get a little brainwashed and a little obsessed with their leader. Now, something good that came out of the Jim Jones story was that he collapsed one day. I'm not sure if this was due to an accident or if he was ill, but he was taken to the hospital and he was accidentally put in the blacks only wing. Yet, when the nurses tried to to move him to the whites part of the hospital, he refused and he stood his ground and he would not leave. In fact, he even started making the, his fellow patients' beds in the mornings. He would empty their bedpans, and he would talk to them all the time. And because of his protest and the kind deeds that he was displaying, the hospital decided it was finally time to desegregate their wards and to treat everybody equally. This was massive for the time, and he did a lot more activism to desegregate the city, and in doing so, 1961 became his year. The city of Indianapolis was largely desegregated because of his efforts, and his following became so large that it was starting to gain national attention. Along with this gained popularity and his his visions for peace and love, he was starting to slowly lose his grasp on reality. He announced to his congregation that God gave him a vision of nuclear warfare in the states and that they all needed to leave somewhere soon. I'm going to interject that Jim Jones could have been something great. He was ahead of his time and actually had the power to desegregate his city, which at the time just, they hadn't had someone like that before. This was a step in the right direction. He was smart, he had wit, and he had an ideal vision of the future in mind. It's really unfortunate what he decided to do with his power. Jones soon learned that South America was named as one of the safest places to go should there be a nuclear weapons war in North America. So, following his vision, or perhaps a hallucination, that God was telling him about impending nuclear warfare, he moved with his family to Brazil so he could scout out a location to permanently relocate the People's Temple out of Indiana. During his time away, He was researching local areas and trying to find a place that would be accepting of his ideas without revealing his communism and his Marxist ideals to the people. And as he was gone, the number of followers at the People's Temple back in the States dwindled enough so that Jones got word that they were going to collapse if he didn't return soon and revive his followers. Begrudgingly, he returned with a vengeance. Something snapped in Jones, and if he was going to be a leader and hold the power he so desperately wanted, he needed to be assertive. Keeping South America in the back of his mind, he professed to his congregation, who was slowly growing again, that God revealed they needed to move to California, so that's exactly what they did. To appeal more to the crowds in California, San Francisco to be exact, Jones hid his communistic beliefs under the guise of what he called apostolic socialism. 
With the rebranding of his teachings, Jones decided to do a little rebranding himself. He declared that Christianity was wrong in the eyes of God and that the Bible was the mockery of the true God, being that he, Jim Jones, was actually God on earth. To move to California, it took a lot of money and they needed his people to work on farms in order for them to be able to keep the people's temple up and going. And this move did nothing to help Jim's growing paranoia and his deteriorating mental state. And on top of that, he started abusing drugs. He believed hardcore that the government was out to get him and that the people's temple would eventually be raided one day. He demanded that his followers paid him all of their money. And like I said, he forced them to go work on these farms and establish them and sell the produce in order to make more money for the people's temple. He started controlling all of their finances too. This is another red flag of a cult leader, is when they start controlling your finances and how you spend or save your money, then it's probably time for you to question them. But unfortunately, the members of the People's Temple were already hooked on Jim Jones. And the slow burn of control that he had over them eventually lit a blaze when they dedicated their lives to this man that they assumed to be the real God. Jones started using sex as a weapon against his congregation. He raped women and men, all in the name of holiness. And this is another sign of a cult. <laughs> Rebellion simply wasn't allowed in Jim's eyes. Those who rebelled were starved, forced to work really hard, and were even faced with massive public humiliation in front of the congregation, something we'll see a lot of later on in the story. By 1973, the People's Temple had over 2,500 members, and the number was steadily rising. Keep in mind that all the while, Jim's paranoia was getting even worse. He suspected that the government would find out about his schemes and his rituals of sex abuse and stealing funds from the people who trusted him the most. So to evade the U.S. officials, he declared the People's Temple would be bound for Guyana in South America. It's important to note that Guyana was a socialist country at the time, so it was the perfect opportunity for Jones to blend in and hide with his ideas. By the time of 1974, members from the People's Temple were down in Guyana preparing the land for others to come live in harmony, safe from nuclear warfare, as Jones had said. Jonestown was well underway, forests were being cleared, crops were being planted, Shacks were being built, and at the center, a massive pavilion was being constructed where the members would frequently meet for sermons from their beloved god, Jim Jones. During this time, there was a leak from the People's Temple, and an article was published about the sexual abuse many of the people were suffering at the hands of Jim Jones, and this was his final straw. Jones promised his people that a socialist sanctuary was possible in Guyana, and he quickly moved them there. Upon their arrival, people were extremely underwhelmed with the so-called paradise Jim had promised. The bountiful crops, the lush greenery, and the easy living, while they were nowhere to be, nowhere to be found. Once at the compound, life became excruciating for the people of Jonestown. They were forced to work extremely long hours under the Guyana sun, and there was little room for mistakes. They hardly had any sleep and the food rations were dwindling. And on top of all of that, 
People were encouraged to be spies for Jim and would report to him any misdoings. Jim was hoarding their money and continued to weaponize his power to gain their loyalty. People became paranoid because their leader was a paranoid man. He continued to take drugs as his mental state was deteriorating. He started to do something which would infamously be known as White Knights. Now, if you've ever heard of this, uh, you probably hear White Knight come to mind because an intercom system had been installed in Jonestown. And sometimes during the middle of the night, Jim would hop on the intercom, screaming, waking everybody up. Keep in mind, these people were exhausted, only having an hour, two hours, maybe four hours at most of sleep, and were working in the sun all day long. He would have them convene at the pavilion where he would preach to them for hours on end, sometimes from sundown to sun up, and then they would have to return to the fields and work all over again. When people are sleep deprived, they start to do, say, and think crazy things. These white knights were enjoyed by Jim. They were a test of his followers' loyalty. As they would hurry out of their shacks and be seated at the pavilion with him screaming, white knight over and over and over again he had armed guards surround the structure as he would spew radical teachings at them and claim to have visions that the u.s government was tracking them and was on the verge of a military attack at the compound imagine having to sit there for hours listening to this drugged man ramble on after working in the sun all day they must have been so mentally defeated and exhausted in every single way time and time again the people would be woken up by Jim's voice screaming, alert, 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 white knight, over the intercom. They'd be surrounded by guards with guns and bows and arrows and fear for their lives that they were about to be raided by U.S. officials. During these white nights, Jones would force his people to chant, to sing, and to pray together to ward off the attackers, and of course, when no one attacked them during the night, Jim would claim this as a victory and say that their faith saved them. This is such a crazy manipulation tactic that it's hard to believe it actually happened when we're looking at it. You know, like hindsight's twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. He would also administer severe punishments to some of his followers, as I mentioned earlier. Some would be beaten in front of the entire congregation. Over 900 people, keep in mind. Yeah. Others would be sentenced to spend time in a box that they kept underground, which was a separate sensory deprivation chamber that he had built. One night in particular, Jim recorded himself punishing a woman who had an extreme fear of snakes. He would frequently record these punishments on tape, and in this incident, it's honestly just described as a senseless act of cruelty. In this tape, the woman is brought in front of the crowd at the pavilion. She's reprimanded and yelled at for something she did. It's not entirely clear what she did, but I can only imagine it was maybe taking another ration of food or talking back to someone. Something minor. Mm -hmm. Then, a snake is placed on her and she's forced to stay there while the snake is slithering around her limbs. She's screaming in utter terror and the crowd is laughing at her and screaming horrible names at her. A man in the crowd calls her snake food for dinner. And then Jones says this, and you can hear it on the tape. He says, to the snake. Hi, you old sweet fella. I like him. The more I see of these guys, the more I like them. 
Yeah, look at that. Look at that grip. That's a grip. You're a good one. The crowd taunts her as the snake poops on her and starts to shed skin all over her. This is horrifying. (laughs) I'm not scared of snakes, but I can only imagine the embarrassment, first of all, that she had being taunted by 900 people at once, being sleep sleep deprived and weak, and having your biggest fear crawling all over you. Here's a clip from that tape. You can hear the terror in her voice as she's promising the people that she'll never do whatever she did again. Turn around, look at the people. Turn around, look at the people. Talk to them. See if they will get the snake off your back. I never see promise I won't do it again. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. No one do it again. This just goes to show how brainwashed they all were by Jim because any normal person would hear her pleas and would rush to help her, right? Oh yeah, for sure. And it's the fact that it's families regular families with children standing there just screaming at her mocking her calling her horrible words while she's literally experiencing the worst thing of her life and it sounded like she's just like crazy flustered you could tell she's just bawling and like you could just hear the mucus in her throat from all the crying and exactly like she can't think properly because she's in survival mode and she's doing whatever she can Now, during another one of these white nights, Jones passed out cups of liquid to his followers and told them to drink up and enjoy. After they drank up, he exclaimed that they had all just been poisoned and that the military would be here any minute to destroy them. Terror ensued as people started shaking and screaming, believing that they were on the cusp of death, including little children. Now, this was a lie. It was all a test to see if his followers would drink the cup. It was a test to see if he could make them do the unthinkable. And they were fine. At least for now. At this time, family members of those in Jonestown who were still in the U.S. grew really concerned. Jim had limited his followers' contact with the outside world, and their loved ones wanted to know what was going on with their siblings, parents, and children in the strange, faraway town that they were living in. They formed a group called the Concerned Relatives and brought up their concerns with Congressman Leo Ryan, who decided he would go on a special mission to Jonestown to collect intel. In fact, this was a human rights issue for American citizens, for all he knew, so he wanted to travel to Guyana to clear the air and make sure everyone was okay and bring home people if they wanted to come home. When Jones caught word of Congressman Ryan's impending visit, He grew intensely furious, even more paranoid and angry. He prepared his people on what to say to the congressman to ease his worries. He ordered the pavilion to be decorated and a choir to be formed and the show of a century to be put on for the crew who was about to investigate the claims of human rights violations within the walls of Jonestown. Congressman Ryan was joined by several reporters, journalists, defectors from Jonestown, so people who had escaped, and concerned citizens, as well as an NBC film crew. 
So this was national headlines. This was a massive thing going on in the States. And people at Jonestown had no idea because their contact was completely cut off. Upon the crew's arrival at Jonestown, they were met with a kind hostility in a way where people were kind to their face. Sorry, kind to their face, but they were a spy behind their back. Every move was monitored. Every conversation people had with the congressman was questioned. Everyone was on edge, to say the least, and most of all, Jim Jones was at the height of his paranoia. There's a movie about this that is so good. I bought it while I was doing this research because I liked it so much. It's called The Sacrament, and I highly recommend that every single person watches it, but it's one of those found footage kind of documentaries. Yeah. Have you seen it? Um, I've not. So what happens is it's like... It's Vice. It's their news crew. And someone has contacted them saying, my sister's gone with this group to South America. I don't know what happened to her. I want to go get her back. And it's based off of Jonestown. It's really good, and I recommend you watch it. And they get it down to a T, what happened. Even the way he acted, the show that they put on, it's so good. And on top of that, recent news, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is going to be playing Jim Jones in a new movie coming out soon called White Knight. Oh, I thought it was going to be uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. So cool. Dang. Sweet. Yeah. So that night, the people in Jonestown put on a huge party at the, p- at the pavilion for their guests. They made food, performed music, and had Jim Jones speak to his people. Congressman Ryan made the announcement that he was flying home the next day and would take anyone with him who wanted to leave the compound. Later on during the festivities, a small group of defectors wrote a note that read, Please help us get out of Jonestown. The member who was in charge of passing this note mistook one of the NBC crew members as Congressman Ryan. He attempted to hand the man the note, pleading for their freedom, but in the dancing and the passing of hands, it dropped to the ground. Oh, no. The man was not the intended Congressman Ryan. The note fell on the ground, a follower saw the note, and a voice erupted through the singing with, He passed that man a note! And this fatal mistake was the beginning of the end of Jonestown. Join us for my next narrated episode to hear the fate of Jim's victims. In part two, we'll dive into how cyanide affects the body when ingested, a horrifying tape recording that was discovered at the scene of the crime, recording every single person's last breaths, and the ripples of Jim Jones today. I promise you don't want to miss it. It's going to be spine-tingling. Ooh, all right, (laughs) all right. Uh, And we will air that um, the next, next week. That way you can hear both parts right after each other. Sweet. I'm so excited. Yeah, tune in, guys. It's going to get really intense. So might as well give you a trigger warning now, but I think you can handle it. Yeah. uh, We'll scare you in the next one, guys. Stay spooky. Bye.